0: Welcome to Mofo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter
1: experts, and lawyers. Hi everyone, Aaron Kramer here. I'm the president and CEO at BSR, a global nonprofit business network dedicated to just and sustainable business. And I'm delighted to welcome you to today's session, which should be quite interesting. This is the ninth episode in the series on ESG influencers leading transformative change and we are joined today by two leaders in responsible technology Paula Goldman who is the Chief Ethical and Humane Use Officer at Salesforce and Luke Morel, who is Senior of Counsel Privacy for Privacy and Data Security That practice at Morrison Forster and also serves on the ESG steering committee for MoFo. Two great leaders with a lot of very relevant experience on the subject that we'll be talking about today. I would say from where I sit at BSR that there are four uh, epochal, foundational, fundamental, if you want to say existential questions that companies addressing just and sustainable business are addressing today. One, of course, is certainly the climate crisis. I would also add the need for greater equity in our economy. But then the third and fourth, we will be touching on today. The third is the very significant rise in regulation on various aspects of business that relate to ESG and have been the province of voluntary action over the last two or three decades since BSR got started. And and then also the rapid innovation in technologies, which present a lot of very significant questions with respect to data, safety, privacy, and human rights. So we are right at the center of that. I am delighted that we can use this latest episode in the series that BSR is very proud to be partnering on with Morrison Forrester to dive into the topics related to responsible use of technology. Let me start with a question for both of you. Maybe Paula, you can go first, but tell us a little bit about your backgrounds. How have your roles changed over the past two or three years as responsible technology has grown in importance and complexity? So Paula, maybe we can start with you
0: absolutely. And I should also say, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. So I actually want to go back a little bit farther than two or three years. What I would say is two or three years, like my, the role, the work on responsible AI and responsible technology has certainly grown in volume and complexity and probably pace. But I think, I guess my, I've been at Salesforce for about four and a half years And I think that kind of widely coincides. Five, six years, we started to see big tech companies creating groups or expanding groups dedicated to responsible AI or responsible technology. I came to this role because I had been always working at this intersection of technology, markets, and social good. And At first, investing in kind of technology for good technology to reach marginalized populations, to open up opportunities, and paying attention to the role of data and the question of data ethics and data access and all of that kind of stuff, and started to think more formally about how we could develop practices at scale that would ensure technology was both inclusive and responsible and i think since i did i was doing that under the auspices of a media network and i think i've what i've been witnessing over the last few years and of course particularly this year and i know we're going to get into this is just an explosion in how relevant those questions are to our everyday lives
1: thanks for that paula and i think the trajectory that you described is one that I think a lot of companies would share in addition to Salesforce. So thanks for that. Very concise and very useful look back. Loka, how has your role changed and how have you seen things grow in importance and complexity? And you can use two or three years or a different time
2: frame. Yeah, we'll use the frame of Paula. I'm also a professor in global technology and law, and I've been speaking and writing on this topic since i accepted my professorship in 2014, and then that led to a TEDx talk in 2017 on the ethical AI and the issues there, and it got some traction, really, and we, I did quite a few board sessions with tech companies, and I did some really big AI implementation projects. But the level of interest now and suddenly people saying, oh, I saw your TEDx talk. And I thought that was quite a few years ago anyway. Interesting to see, and maybe BSR will have had a similar experience. Many involved in ESG have for years, they've been talking to deaf ears, and now suddenly everybody is an ESG expert. It's very hard to say, not to say, I told you, but there you go. So this is history I see.
1: Yes, the blessing and the curse of being an early adopter. That is a familiar... I think so. A familiar dynamic.
2: Okay, uh, we can relate, I think. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let me. I've got a couple more questions that I want to use to frame the discussion, and they have to do yeah. with the terminologies. For purposes of today's discussion, first of all, how do you define the term responsible technology? Loki okay, can I start with you on that mm-hmm. one?
2: Yeah, I think the main ethical rule in any technology, and that is developed long before we had AI, we apply now the things we develop for innovation and now to AI as well. But the main rule is that New technologies should be human-centric, and that means that they should benefit individuals and society as a, at large. Yeah, that goes back to the philosopher Kant. Kant. Kant, humans should not be used as a means to an end. You shouldn't use them as an instrument, but as a, an end in themselves. And I see the incentives for companies are now very much trying to get more or to get efficiency gains and less on checking the impact, the real impact on individuals and society. And that is what I just heard Paula say, look, what does it mean? Had a wider impact. I see a lot of people now talking about balancing the risk and the benefits at the micro level. But we need to make sure that these technologies at the macro level also benefit society as a whole. As to jobs, fair distribution of resources, you said the inequality in the economy, that that those are relevant questions as well. So that is my definition of responsible AI.
1: Thank you for that. And I like the fact that you start with a philosopher as the base of, because the technologies are changing so rapidly, a principles-based approach with the North Star is very helpful because what might be true on a Tuesday may not be true on a Friday because of different use cases, different technologies. Let's focus, Paula, maybe on one. And Paula, if you'd like to dive in on responsible, defining responsible technology, please do. I'd like also to ask you, we're going to make a lot of reference today to the term generative AI. We use that as the tentpole for a lot of the discussion. How would you define generative AI?
0: The terminology is a little bit confusing. It might be worth getting taking a step back. So I I hear a lot of kind of common parlance around like predictive AI and generative AI. What's confusing is both of those types of artificial intelligence are they're both predictive. Actually, I think what when we think about the perception of an enormous leap forward in the technology itself and the kind of two different generations of artificial intelligence the distinctions I think about are twofold. One is, the type of artificial intelligence that we were commonly dealing with, thats that we call predictive, these are generally single-purpose models that are meant for specific things. And now we're talking about foundation models that can do many different things and different types of applications for entirely different purposes built upon these models. So that's one big difference. The second difference gets to the term generative itself. So of course, both of these models are, both of these types of models are predicting. So when you get a large language model, it is predicting the next word and then the next word and the next word. But but whereas you might say, here's a predictive model, let's say in Salesforce's case to help a salesperson identify the next best opportunity, the next best product to sell in a particular instance, It's more of a descriptive, it's describing the world, whereas the generative models that we're talking about right now, they're actually creating, they're creating new content, new forms of output. And so those are the two big differences that I see when we talk about generative AI.
1: Thank you very much. Luca, do you want to dive no, into
2: this? No, perfect one? explanation. Well done. <laughs>
1: Great. And we're seeing all sorts of interesting challenges. The American comedian Sarah Silverman has brought a lawsuit now about content based on her performances. And we're going to see a lot, a whole lot more of that, to be sure. As someone who used to be a lawyer... Say these are are times that are made for lawyers because these things are going to be tested in courts, to be sure. And I should say a lawyer who started my law career at Morrison Forster. So there you are. Um, (laughs) So we'll get into the substance now. So there are a lot of cross currents here. And we've already talked on the role played by technologists, by by lawyers, by philosophers, by, by people like you, Paula, who are trying to guide companies through all this, and of course, lawyers. So we'll look at this from the perspective of regulations, innovation, investor questions, consumer desires, stakeholder considerations. Let's start with regulation because there's a lot that is in motion right now, a lot that's in motion. And of course, regulators are most comfortable dealing with relatively static situations as opposed to very dynamic situations, which is what we're facing here okay, let me start with you because the European Union, like so many things related to ESG regulation, is out in front in many ways. So can you speak to what's going on? Obviously, the Digital Services Act comes into force next month. What should people be thinking about and how should people understand what's happening in the EU with respect to regulation on generative AI?
2: yeah. First of all, that there will be new laws. I think everybody has heard about the new regulation on AI that is in final stages. And hopefully they aim to adopt it before the end of 2024. There will be no n- new laws. Doesn't mean that they, there's no AI is now completely unregulated. Huh? And that's actually around the world as well. We have anti discrimination laws everywhere. We have copyright laws. We have unfair trade laws. And none of them, I just want to stress it, do have an exception for AI. So if it is. <laughs> Regulating current technologies that applies to doesn't matter how you perform copyright or uh, privacy infringement uh, those laws apply and in in Europe, we have, in addition, the GDPR, which has fairness requirements as transparency requirements. So if AI creates biased outputs it violates the fairness principle if you. Automated decisions with AI, you need to explain, and if it's a black box, you can't. So there's a lot of things there already. And the AI, and then you ask why an AI Act, and it's actually meant as a top-on. It's the first omnibus regulation regulating all forms of AI, and then making a distinction be, between high risk, medium, and low, and different levels of regulation. But basically, it's meant as a top-on of GDPR. So, all the, it needs to be fair, transparent, and well-trained, and et cetera. Why then the AI Act is basically because GDPR doesn't apply to when it's non-personal data, and you can have a lot of AI trained with regular data, that is one. GDPR applies to the one processing, using the technology to process data. What about the developer somewhere else who trains model and then puts it on the market? So it is applying to the developer of the technology rather than just the user. It applies also when you train the algorithm on US personal data. So there's all reasons why we have this AI act, but Basically, ultimately, GDPR already applies. And when it's person trained with personal data, a lot of the rules apply already. Is I, this a bit...
1: I, I wanted to ask yep. about a term. You use the term regular data in contrast to personal data. When you say regular data in that context, what are you referring to?
2: It could be distribution data, measurement data on your ESG performance that doesn't relate to individuals. Okay. It could be any data. I don't know statistics on your, I don't know, the use of your products that do not reveal any individual. Let
1: me do a follow-up with you, Loka, right now, and then Paula, come to you in a second. Because one, I think you made a great point about the intersection with already existing regulations on other topics. I would add to that some non-binding sort of soft law principles along the lines of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, for example, which are deeply relevant to the to this topic even though they were not written yeah. with ai involved and of course the universal declaration of human rights was adopted in 1948, when very few people even had televisions, let alone in these new technologies. But I did want to ask about the CSRD and reporting requirements in Europe. How do you see, what do you see as the interplay between some of these emerging technologies and CSRD? Yeah,
2: well, reporting requirements will relate also to human rights impacts of digital business, models. So on consumers, end users, etc. And it will be, in my opinion, we will end up if all these laws CSRD is obviously already adopted. But if we have the AI Act as well, you would do a privacy impact assessment under the GDPR, then do a top on for the AI conformity assessment under the AI Act, and then a top on for the human rights impact assessment under the CSRD. And they are all slightly different angles. Uh, it is a full 360 assessment of impact, not only on your own risk, but also the impact on the individuals, the impact on the environment, and society at large. So it is about not only privacy, but also autonomy. if you are taking decisions in an automated way, you undermine people's autonomy and, but also the freedom of expression. So it is a uh a full blown and uh, um It may now seem unregulated, but if I see the amount of litigation in the US, the investigations by the FTC into certain the fairness of certain algorithms and the transparency thereof, I tell you, we we will see a tsunami of new laws trying to regulate this. And then the question is, but that will be likely, let's see how Paula thinks that they managed to coordinate that on a global level. It will be... Similar to GDPR, it's one law, but GDPR style laws are now in 140 countries. So this is not the end of the European Act. People say, oh, the European Act, but it's only the start.
1: So Paula, leaders like you, companies like Salesforce, Luca just spoke about a tsunami. You're standing on the beach. How are you, you going to handle this tsunami? But dark humor aside the laws are in formation. There are some that are existing that are relevant. There are new ones that are being adopted that are not yet fully understood and even more being considered. And oh, by the way, different jurisdictions have different requirements. So for someone like you, for a company like Salesforce, how do you manage all of this? How do you make <laughs> sense of it? How do you say this is the direction we need to go in, in yeah. a know, that is shifting so rapidly?
0: Yeah, I guess I would make a couple of points. One is I would go back to what Loke said about all the different longstanding regulations around civil rights or whatnot that still apply that have no exceptions for AI. And so I I, I kind of want to answer the question in two ways. The one way is just to say there's a bit of a common sense approach to developing responsible technology that sort of identifies like, hey, here are some potential risks of a specific application. Let's mitigate them because we know that they really matter to people and we know that they matter in existing law, et cetera. And I think actually, honestly, 90, 95% of the questions are tackled through that kind of approach. That is not to deny, however, when you started this podcast saying there's been a huge increase in regulatory activity and, and it can be dizzying to keep up with it. It's not just at the different levels that we just identified, whether it's on privacy or AI or human rights or whatnot. It's also even just thinking about within the United States where there's the employment AI regulation in New York city which you know is just for new york city but how do you deal with how do you deal with that when you're working globally and so i do think that there is a real This regulatory activity, I think, is very constructive and important, but there is a real impetus to try to have unifying principles so that, for example, we've been advocating for many years for federal, in the United States, federal privacy regulation because it's very hard to work with a patchwork of different regulations from state to state. I think that's very important. The third thing I'd say, I know I only, I said I would do two, but one more important thing is... Um, I do think it's when we talk about AI in particular, the risk-based approach that Europe is taking is also really important, right? Because we're identifying, again, that no matter what kind of AI you, you're building, you want to build it responsibly, but you want to be paying particular attention to AI that is helping with decisions or access that are that's life-altering. And I think that's a very important principle to keep in mind.
1: So I find it really interesting. Luka, you spoke of human-centered. Paula, you just spoke now of common sense. These are not new principles. These are not new ideas, and they're things that anyone can apply, even when the technologies are new and evolving. And so I think those are great points for everyone to take away. I also like this point about life-altering things. I've heard some say, look, we've always had new technologies, we have automobiles, they are a leading cause of death around the world, and that's true, my retort to that would be that automobile traffic has never changed political outcomes in an election. AI is, I think, a bit different, but maybe we can debate that a little further. One more question on on regulation there is a live debate, not only in this domain, but in other areas. Climate, this comes up a lot on climate. What is the proper role of business in terms of influencing policymakers? We've all seen the videos of he- congressional hearings in the United States where you just know that the tech company CEOs are trying to restrain their laughter when elected members of Congress ask questions that betray their ignorance about technologies. So one might say, we need business to be actively engaged. Others would say, hold on, that's regulatory capture. That doesn't make any sense. Paula, if I can start with you, I don't know if this puts you on the spot too much or not, but what is the proper role for a business? What is the proper role for business writ large in helping to shape regulations? And what are the things that that you should watch out for and that a company should watch out for?
0: Yeah. I think the proper role is as of businesses as one of many voices that helps to shape regulation. It is the case that this technology is developing at a pace that feels unprecedented. I'll say in my day-to-day work a week feels like a year's worth of news in terms of new things that are getting new advances and different types of models and whatnot. And I think that sort of expertise and watching what's going on and translating what's going on is very important. But obviously, a democracy, democratic rulemaking is the product of many groups engaging across civil society. And so it cannot be the case that the business is a dominant seat at the table. I don't think that also works. But I think the other part, I think the other answer I would have to your question, is very important when technology is advancing as rapidly as it is, that businesses are also not waiting that they are instituting measures internally for the responsible development of their technology, that they are also creating their own stakeholder consultation processes. For example, we, amongst many other companies, have advisory boards for these purposes. And and that, I think, is also very important as well, alongside the broader government engagement.
1: Let me, I have a quick follow-up for you on stakeholders, and then, Loki, I'll come to you. So Stakeholder engagement, Salesforce is very good at it. We've been part of Salesforce's activities there. The company deserves a ton of credit. Do, does the definition of stakeholders look different for this than it might on something else, on climate, on oceans, on, on you know, Salesforce is very active here in the San Francisco Bay Area in terms of its own development and livelihoods and so on. So do you think about stakeholders differently in this area than you might in other areas of just and sustainable business?
0: It's obviously enormously difficult when you think about a technology that can affect almost everyone to, it is much easier to have a strategy to work with when you're talking about a specific community that might be geographically defined, like the Bay Area, right? You can break that down and break it down into its component parts. Um, but I don't think that means that companies are off the hook. I think it means that, that identifying specific issues and risk areas. So for example, if someone is developing, let's say, a financial version, a, an AI for use in finance, you'd want to be thinking about financial specific risks and then thinking about particular stakeholders in particular marginalized communities or whatnot that and groups that may be working on behalf and with those communities, grounded in those communities, I think you break it down like that. But it is hard because it does, the impacts are so extensive. And that kind of circles back to your first question here, which is why it's so important that the democratic process, which is designed for that kind of really large-scale stakeholder work, it's really important that that is is leading on this.
1: Yeah, so stakeholder engagement is good to do, but should never be seen as a replacement for democratically-guided principles. Look at what your point of view on the proper role for business in helping to inform and shape regulation. Yeah.
2: I'm happy to. At one point in the CSRD on the digital business models, they, you need to report how the interests and views of the stakeholders are taken into account in the business strategy and the business model. So you first have to select your stakeholders, then actually listen to them and also report and be accountable for what you do with it. So that I thought was a real step, a major step, because under GDPR, they say, oh, you should consult the stakeholders if you do a DPIA. It's not mandatory and you don't have to report on it, which is...
1: DPIA, can you just make sure everyone knows what, what a DPIA is?
2: Uh, Data protection impact assessment. So that is required under the GDPR, which is basically a a risk-based legislation. So you say, I'm going to do a new processing. So you need to list all the risks, inventorize all the risks, then think about all the mitigations. And then you do a risk assessment. Is it low? You can go. If it's medium, you maybe need to do a bit extra. If it's high, you need to go to the authority before you can launch it or you do it. This is what we call risk-based legislation, like Paula said, which is basically meta-regulation. And it is with technology, if it's so new, it's as Paula said, they don't, how as as a Senate, what are they going to regulate if they don't know the details and the beef of it? what they do then is issue meta regulation basically telling companies to regulate themselves by doing data protection impact assessment by conformity assessments human impact assessments yeah? and that is yeah that is how they deal with this type of dilemmas because regulators have a complete dilemma in these cases if they are regulating too fast they are completely wrong mostly if you let it go too long if you let gen ai be embedded everywhere, it's impossible to change. That's called the Collingridge dilemma. And in those cases, they regulate with risk-based legislation as we we just discussed to give the regulators also what we call the required learning loops so they tell i don't know Salesforce look do a good job show me what you did and then they do that with all the companies compare the results issue review issue best practices and so they educate themselves and the market to so that they can innovate in a responsible way and that is mostly how they solve this dilemma because it's impossible to predict what the impact of gen ai will be in the long term that that is it's just too early days for that
1: yeah i think that i think that's really helpful and i think we sometimes think of regulation as a binary there there is regulation there's not regulation There are countless examples of what you're saying, Look, You might start with transparency, then you might start with mandated assessment. Then from that assessment, you may say, these are the areas, we're going to prioritize these areas and learn from that. And these are iterative processes, which is not how the 20th century worked, but we're not in the 20th century anymore. I think there are many tools in the regulatory toolkit and wise regulators as well as wise companies look to take this sort of modular approach that you're saying, because I think we would probably all agree that we want and we need innovation. We don't want regulation that shuts it down prematurely, but we don't want the genies out of the bottle too rapidly either. Let's shift to a question I want to ask inside companies, maybe starting with you and then Paul, I'd love to hear your thoughts with respect to Salesforce. There's been an explosion of interest on the part of boards of directors on ESG. And in fact, it's now mandated through a variety of ways. But the level of interest was rising rapidly, even before some of the regulatory requirements came into force. What's the role of a board of directors here? Loke, do you want to start?
2: Yeah, we are in a transformation. All the experts disagree on everything, except that we are in the fourth industrial revolution and that things are going to be fundamentally different. So that means a lot of new opportunities, but also a lot of new risks. And some you can balance, some are existential. We all saw Higher View being Launched, and we're having the biggest new clients, and then withdrawn. And it creates all new types of dilemmas which are not obvious. So, of course, the board needs to show leadership. And they say with AI, everybody needs to upskill and reskill. I know that always applies to others, but I tell you, the boards need to upskill and reskill as well. They need to have a deep dive in what the impact of the technologies are, not only on a micro level yeah, for their tool, but what it means for society at large. Yeah, that, And they need to get their risk assessments right. And they're very good at making risk assessments when it is about their risk, but not so much about the risks to society and individuals. And for a long time, we had a very stable society, so everything was regulated pretty clear what you were allowed to do and not allowed to do. And even it turned into if there was no rule, it was then thus allowed. And now we need to rethink and make a moral assessment about what they're actually doing. And that is a skill that you lose if you don't use it enough. And that's why you have people like Paula to train them and educate them in that type of assessment and the board will not escape that. That is my, I'm curious how you deal with uh, I'm sure the board is fully involved there uh, at Salesforce.
1: Yeah. yeah. Paula, what can you say about how it works at Salesforce?
2: Yeah, it
0: is true that the board is very engaged on these questions. We have a committee that looks both at it looks at security, privacy, and ethical use of technology.
2: A, a board committee, um, a yeah, a board, board
0: committee, committee. That's yeah. right, and and we have a discussion quarterly about what we're seeing, what we're doing, and I think what Loke said is exactly right. That boards need to be fluent in. The opportunities and risks that these technologies create and what our risk mitigation plans are. I will say, and maybe we're very fortunate at Salesforce that in the sort of enterprise space, the risks and mitigations are generally aligned. Like that—that that is to say, yeah. our customers care a great deal about trust. We know that we need to continue innovating in trust that in fact that There's a, in some sense, the technology that we build into our products to make them trustworthy, um, whether that might be privacy filters or toxicity filters in the case of generative AI or whatnot, even just the safeguards and the the mindful friction that we build into the design of the product itself to help people understand how to use it responsibly, that these are all things that will help our success in the market because businesses know that there are risks, they're fairly educated about it, and they're asking questions of us. There's a way in which we talk about, hey, if we want to go into this particular area, here's how we will make it safe. And here's the cost and benefit of that. And I think those types of conversations are really essential at a board level.
1: Thank you. And look, the world is littered with technological innovations that run afoul of social acceptance and that hinders innovation and it hinders progress. And so that deliberate approach is right. It's a, it's a, maybe an amendment to the mantra of move fast and break things. Moving fast is still important. I'm going to come to that in just a second, actually. But if you break too many things, you've broken a lot of things. And it's bad for society and interferes with social license to operate. So let's talk a little bit about market drivers, because there is, I would imagine that every board is asking management in every company, I know this to be a fact, what is our strategy with respect to AI? How can we put it to use? How can we improve productivity? How can we improve customer experience, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of market pressure to get out there. Is that, how does that play here? And does that, you've spoken to it, Paul, I don't know if there's anything more you'd want to say on that. And look, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well.
0: I mentioned earlier how, just how quickly the technology itself is evolving. And, and I think what's interesting though, is that also just about when we think about markets, like the demand is also very real, right? So there's sometimes when there's a lot of attention on a particular technology, but it's temporary. And it's not to say that there won't be ebbs and flows of attention here, but But I think there's something very substantial about the promise of AI in many different sectors of business and the innovation, the opportunity that it opens up. But I won't deny that it is, it is hard to move as fast as and responsibly at the same time. And the way that you do that is by looking at how you can take it step by step. So at least that's the way that we're approaching it at Salesforce. We are putting a number of generative AI products out into the market at at the request and demand of our customers. But we're starting with these kind of very constrained use cases that are extremely carefully designed and we're testing them. And that's also part of it. It's like you, you don't, with technology that's so rapidly developing, you have to get data and feedback to figure out how to develop it responsibly. You can't do that in a vacuum. You need the customer feedback and interaction to be able to do that. But we're testing it, making sure it's safe, and then building upon it, and then testing that next innovation, making sure it's safe and building upon it, all the while keeping up with the pace of change. Not, I don't want to say it's easy, but I think that's the approach that that's important to take.
1: What, what's, let me go to Loka on this question, then I want to come back to you, Paul, on something r- r- related there. Market drivers and pressures, Loka, how are you seeing that effect? Well,
2: as a general statement, I think it's fair to say that that Gen AI was because once launched, by suddenly everybody was under pressure to to launch uh, too. Is that good? Uh, in a way, but Paula is right. Without that feedback, I personally would hope and uh, think that we would try to get them in a sandbox, do you see if it's, and I don't mean the business to business enterprise versions where you could do it in a very controlled manner for the use cases, but these open products that are to be used by everybody, I think it would help if you do not only require them, I don't know, to do risk assessments, but also do them in a regulatory sandbox with stakeholders and experts and regulators looking along, to to see say okay we can this we can mitigate it in this way is it then okay go or you can't before you do this do you see without killing it but i find it so fundamental that i hope and we've seen the regulatory sandbox as a concept we've seen that it is actually included in the ai act we see it in regulatory policy documents of the European Commission as a preferred way to do it in, in in things like how to deal with the energy transition, how to deal with this type of new innovations. I really recommend that. And uh, you said, hey, move fast and break things. I think maybe most companies by now think, oh, I shouldn't do that because it wasn't a good idea or whatever, but even if you accept that is flawed thinking, it doesn't mean automatically that then th- thus things will be better. Huh? The point is that with new technologies, it's impossible to predict what the impact will be. It's uh, we shape our tools and then they shape us. It is uh, society changes as well. It's not only the technology. It's never straightforward. One example, just to to hit it home, with social media and the internet, everybody thought, oh, we're going to be better connected. We will be more socially active and uh, and a micro level it's true if I if Paula moves jobs I can contact her still great but the macro level again it, it, the, is we see young people being afraid to call the doctor because they can't redact their script do you see and we see the advocate of the Surgeon General in the. US issuing a few weeks ago that there's a, a health mental health loneliness uh, epidemic. Yeah. Exactly. And that a lot of the issues are pointing, the research is pointing to social media because people get you spend too much time online. Anyway, my point is if the whole general public is starting to use certain products, the buy effects are difficult to predict. And we but also from a cybersecurity perspective, etc., it can be used by bad actors as well. That that's my two cents.
1: We've had a masterclass in understanding how quickly social media can change in the last week. Threads didn't exist a week ago. It's got over 100 million users. And and that was, I think, 36 hours ago.
2: Interesting times.
1: It's interesting times. Thank you very much. That is true. We haven't touched on B2B collaboration here, and we haven't talked about touching on that, but I want to... Ask about it because it's been so central. We work with Salesforce, for example, to assemble a coalition to look at how to ensure that investments in carbon mitigation have integrity, and that's been absolutely great. At the same time, there's been massive pushback under the guise, and I would say sometimes cynical in the United States, of antitrust violations. How do you both, or I don't know who would want to take that question, but how do you think about? How do we do industry collaboration in a way that is valuable, that has impact, but reflects respect for antitrust laws, recognizing that in the EU, there is now active debate over whether antitrust regulation should be relaxed to enable a collaboration on climate? How do you think about that?
0: I have to say I, I have benefited enormously from a culture of kind of open sharing within the AI community. And as there's a very loud debate going on right now about open source versus private models and all of that kind of stuff. But we are constantly scanning the literature from companies and from researchers about how we make these things safe. And, and I think it's I guess the only thing that I want to say in response to this question is that it's deeply important that we keep that culture of sharing. And there there are things that we can do regardless of where governments come down on different types of cooperation. but, But the more that we are able to share model cards or data sheets, like all of the different things that keep getting updated for the world of generative AI, these types of standards they spread organically, and it's very important that type of cooperation keeps happening.
1: Thank yeah, yeah. Look, I know.
2: You're I, I, that I, story, but, that. Yeah. I, Yeah, if you, I echo that. I just wrote a piece, and I said, look, if you have innovations on privacy by design, so things will improve from a privacy perspective, I think that should be open source and shared, because otherwise you would compete on privacy, while it is a fundamental human right in in Europe, do you see, so uh, but you're right. I, I, I think there's a lot of cooperation, and people are really looking out for ways to to uh, to scan everything, as Paula said, just to to learn. But I also see in Europe that under certain new acts, hey, you, there's transparency requirements about the algorithms for ranking stuff, etc. And my prediction is that will be coming up more and more also that for instance that you need to give transparency at least in your algorithm not only to the regulators but also to specific academics or universities for checking things and that is where i see so is that cooperation but it is having to open up to make sure your stuff is fair basically
1: Thank you for that. Loka, you just used the word, the P word, prediction, and that's where I'm going to go next. This is the most okay. dangerous part of the discussion because I'm oh, going yeah. to ask you each for a look ahead and Niels, you may know Neil, Niels Bohr's famous statement that predictions are hard, especially about the future. Mm-hmm. He's a very funny Danish scientist in addition to his great skills. So Luka, first with you, are there technologies that you see coming along that might raise even more profound questions for businesses the innovation doesn't stop here
2: yeah famous last words i'll hear them back but i think we ain't seen nothing yet if we combine ai with quantum computing and i've i was the chair of a call for a quantum research and it's mind-boggling there what they think they can do so if that is combined Truly, I don't know what will be possible, but to make it closer at home with a new, with a metaverse and glasses, they can collect even more different types of data like eye tracking and pupil dilation, and that can show your level of interest, whether it's sexual or otherwise, and whether you're excited, bored, embarrassed, frustrated... What are, all emotions you may will want to hide? It, we become very transparent. That if you think we're transparent now, it will be a next level. So I don't know what the mind-reading capabilities will, how that will impact our behavior, how we interact, what type of meta uh, avatars you're going to choose. Huh? There's research that if you have a very attractive avatar, you become People are nicer to you, and you actually become your avatar, so it has an effect on you, how it's called the proteus effect. But what will that, how will that impact if I look in then look in the boring old mirror to myself anyway? My point is, it's about the combination of the technology. It's not just AI on its own. It is the new types of data plus quantum computing with where things can go so quick that but also all types of new sensing technology. I, I try to think about it, but I'm for sure. I think I don't have a, we, again, we ain't seen nothing yet. That, that is, we're really at the start of this new era. I see Paula nodding. I'm glad.
1: <laughs> Paula, let me ask you if you want to build on that. And then I've got a question for you as well.
0: No, I was just going to say, I do agree. And I'm not foolish enough to actually make predictions. I certainly am keeping track of where we think specific AI technology is going and lots of discussions about agents and autonomous systems and stuff like that. But, but I know enough to know I'm going to be surprised as things develop. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's There's wisdom in that. Thank you for that. That's a very good comment, I think. (laughs) It's what you know after you think you know everything that really, what you learn after you think you know it all. There's a famous baseball manager that said that. I think that's really smart. So yeah, I think (laughs) your comment is spot on. Paula, before we close out, do you see generative AI as being qualitatively different from other innovations, or is this just a sequel in a movie we've already seen before?
0: And this goes back to your comment about automobiles and how is that we have a safety regime for automobiles. Is this different? I think there's a few things that are different here. You mentioned one of them, which is the impact on the information ecosystem, although that's not totally new, but it definitely accelerates. The second thing that's different is this: just the speed, the rapidity which, with which innovations are happening. And even when you ask top researchers, what's going on with a specific thing within this model? Sometimes they don't know the answer to the question yet. I think that's very different, but but I am cautious of, there's a narrative that's going on right now about kind of superhuman AI. And what I'm cautious about is the sort of implications that we don't have the tools to deal with it. That there's, some, there's yeah. something in the narrative that feels like it's right to be, to take a step back and say, wow, this is really powerful. We need to think about this very seriously. We may need to adapt the existing regulations we have. We may need new tools as a society to deal with it, but I don't, I where. but I don't land that this is wholly different. I think we have the tools we need and we just need to keep adapting and applying and not lose faith in. The democratic process and democratic yeah. tools and responsible technology tools and whatnot because it's only by continuing to apply and adapt that we will be able to ensure the responsible development of this technology
2: yeah that can i great. add to that by making it so big it nearly absolves you from looking at the day-to-day things that we can solve now and that is what i don't like about this framing is that we can do th- about things about bias in algorithms or we can do make sure the output is correct i'm sure we will manage that and then there's still a lot of issues but we ultimately with the cars we regulated them i, I don't know i'm we're just starting to regulate and think about it that that is my point
1: yeah thank you both so much i learned a lot i enjoyed the discussion <laughs> Your knowledge. And I would say it is really knowledge and wisdom. And both of those things are so crucially important. So I think everyone will have taken away a lot of really good insights from this discussion. And thanks to everyone who has joined us. We're going to take August off for a bit of holiday. The episode will, and I hope all of us as people will as well. So be on the lookout. We will be announcing the September episode coming soon. And thanks again, Loka, Paula, and everyone who joined. Thanks, everybody. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard
0: today, or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash
1: podcasts. Again, that's mofo mofo.com slash podcasts.